0: This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis, Center. the Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. I'm Sarah Faella, Davis Center Communications Officer, and you're listening to another episode of the Eurasian Enigma. Stalin's death in March 1953 took the world by surprise. In the United States, the Eisenhower administration was on edge at the prospect of an armed confrontation with the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, a campaign against Soviet Jewry prompted speculation and bewilderment from observers around the world. Stalin's passing marked a major turning point, but did it lead to lasting change? In this episode of the Eurasian Enigma, Joshua Rubinstein discusses his latest book, The Last Days of Stalin. A longtime associate of the Davis Center, Joshua Rubinstein has been professionally involved with human rights and international affairs for more than 40 years. He's the author and editor of several major works on Soviet and Soviet Jewish history, including biographies of Leon Trotsky and of the writer Ilya Ehrenberg. He's also written about the history of the Soviet human rights movement and about the Holocaust in German-occupied Soviet territory. Josh, welcome to the Eurasian Enigma. Thanks so much for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you. Good to see you.
0: The first chapter of your book takes us to the final days and hours before Stalin's death. You write that although Stalin had deployed the full resources of his empire to protect himself, all these precautions served only to enhance his vulnerability. As just one example, his personal physician, Vladimir Vinogradov, had been arrested the preceding November for his alleged role in the infamous doctor's plot, in which high-ranking Jewish physicians were falsely accused of conspiring to poison Soviet leaders. What was the atmosphere like in March 1953? And how did events unfold at Stalin's dacha in the Moscow suburb of Kuntsevo?
1: Well, you're raising raising several important issues. First, the general atmosphere in the country, and then what happened when Stalin collapsed on Sunday, March 1st. Throughout the winter of 1952-1953, the atmosphere in the Soviet Union was growing far more harsh and tense. This had to do particularly with the doctor's plot, this announcement on January 13th that a group of doctors, mostly Jewish, had been conspiring to undermine the health of Soviet leaders, Soviet generals, and others with the assistance of the Joint Distribution Committee in New York, a Jewish aid organization, and with the Zionists and the Americans. So this unleashed a torrent of propaganda inside the country, targeting Jewish medical doctors, and of course, indirectly targeting Jews in general. And no one, was going, no one could understand where this was all headed. At the same time, there were hints in the Soviet press that the Soviet intelligence services, led by or among among the leaders Lavrenty Beria, uh, had been lax, had not been sufficiently vigilant in stopping this so-called uh, doctor's plot from uh, threatening Sov- the Soviet leadership, and this was an indirect hint that Stalin was planning some kind of purge. Targeting barrier, targeting others within what was now called the Presidium, the old Politburo. We know that in October 1952, following the 19th Party Congress, Stalin had broadened the size of what had been the Politburo into the Presidium. He had brought on some little known people and populated the Presidium with, with now 25 people, not 10. At the same time, behind closed doors, he was denouncing longtime colleagues, longtime lieutenants like Vyacheslav Molotov, Anastas Mikoyan, Clement Varashilov. And there is reason, to believe, that, that Lavrenty Beria was also being targeted. So a lot of this is very opaque, and scholars are a bit at a loss to say definitively what Stalin had in mind we do know that there are severe rumors that the doctor's plot would culminate in a public trial of the accused doctors and their public execution, perhaps in Red Square. But all that is is actually speculation. And there are also serious rumors that Stalin would use the doctor's plot to accuse Soviet Jews in general of treachery against the regime, that they would face the so-called wrath of the people, and that in order to save them, Soviet Jews en masse from the European cities of the Soviet Union would be deported to Central Asia. These are the rumors that were circulating, and this very much affected the atmosphere in the Soviet Union leading up to the events of March 1953.
0: So what happened exactly at the Dacha after Stalin collapsed?
1: Right. Well, on Saturday evening, February 28th, Stalin had the habit of uh, inviting his lieutenants to watch a movie with him at the Kremlin. This was a regular occurrence. Stalin was actually a very lonely old man. He didn't have a very good relationship with his children. He hardly saw his grandchildren. He was not married. He He had no real family close to him. So he relied on his lieutenants to keep him company. And this was always an invitation they could not refuse. So they watched the movie at the Kremlin And then they all went to the Dacha about 10 miles away for dinner, arriving around midnight. Again, this was a regular occurrence. According to Khrushchev, they stayed until four or five in the morning, and uh, they did a certain amount of drinking, but Stalin seemed in a good mood. Khrushchev then writes that by the middle of Sunday, they expected to get another call from Stalin, that he was up, that he needed something, that he wanted to see them again, but there was no call. Meanwhile, at the dacha, Stalin's guards and the other household staff waited at 11 a.m., 12 noon, for the usual call from Stalin, that he wanted tea, that he wanted to see the newspapers, maybe some breakfast, but there was no summons. And the rule at the dacha was that unless Stalin summoned you to his private quarters, no one was allowed to enter. That was part of his security arrangement. He was very paranoid, even in the proximity of his guards. So there was no summons from Stalin, no no word, no buzzer sounded. So the rest of the day unfolded, and the guards grew increasingly nervous. So around 10 o'clock at night, and still there was no word from Stalin... They decided to send in an older woman who had worked at the dacha for many years, and they figured that if Stalin was all right, he wouldn't be unnerved at seeing her. She found Stalin on the floor. His his uh, nightclothes were drenched in urine. He was mostly unconscious. So, of course, she sounded the alarm. The guards came in. They lifted him onto a sofa. They then tried to reach Malenkov and Barry and others, In order to alert them that Stalin, something had happened to Comrade Stalin. Eventually, by two in the morning, Malenkov and Beria, maybe Khrushchev, reached the dacha. Stalin, they found, was snoring. And Beria claimed that meant he was actually sleeping, that he was healthy, that he was okay, and nothing untoward had happened. So they left. They didn't call the doctors. The guards remained very nervous and anxious. And by the morning, they again sounded the alarm. At that point, doctors were summoned. So we believe that at least... 12 hours and maybe 18 hours passed from the time Stalin collapsed until doctors were summoned. Would this have made a difference? It's very unlikely. He had a very severe stroke, and there was simply no treatment that could have saved him.
0: And his treatment, once it finally was underway, was complicated by the ongoing nature of the doctor's plot.
1: Well, that's right. In other words, when they first announced uh, the team of doctors who were treating uh, Stalin, and that didn't happen until the early morning of March 4th, so another two days went by before the country and the world uh, were alerted, none of the doctors were Jewish. That was first because they didn't want to give the impression of the population that any Jewish doctor could be trusted, or that they might be doing something nefarious to undermine Stalin's health. So this was a way of sustaining the population's trust that Stalin was being treated properly. Secondly, they waited several days before alerting the world, because this meant the priority was... To make clear how the government how the government responsibilities and party responsibilities would be divided among Stalin's heirs, so Malenkov and Beria took the lead. They consulted Khrushchev, they consulted Molotov, Kaganovich, and others. So they made clear how, th- how, how power would devolve, and only then did they make the announcement. Finally, we have to recognize that medical care uh, for a stroke of this nature was really uh, pretty backward compared to what is possible now. There were no real drugs they could use. They actually applied leeches to Stalin's ears and the back of his neck in order to reduce the amount of blood, thinking that would reduce the blood pressure. This was a traditional method. But of course, it had no effect. So in the end, uh, he eventually died on the evening of March 5th, near 10 p.m., around 9:50 p.m. And again, the population was not alerted to his death until early the next morning, when an announcement was made on radio Moscow.
0: In the United States, the intense speculation and rumors of Stalin's decline were followed by bewilderment upon the death of the Soviet leader. Many, both in the West and in Russia, assumed that things would be worse or at least no better, after Stalin's death. But to U.S. President Eisenhower's disgust, the U.S. government turned out to have no policy plans for life after Stalin. What opportunities were missed as a result?
1: Well, in my book, I go into some detail about the internal discussions uh, within the Eisenhower administration and how Prime Minister Churchill in England, Churchill had returned to office in 1952. He was old, he was frail, but he still had a sense of history. He was pressing Eisenhower right with the inauguration in January of 1953. He was pressing Eisenhower to see Stalin that maybe some accommodation could be made in Europe. And then after Stalin died, Churchill insisted that Eisenhower reach out to the Kremlin, to the new leaders, and find a way to have a discussion to perhaps reduce tensions over Germany, over Korea, over the hot points that divided the world during the, these initial years of the Cold War. Now, of course, I, do, I avoid engaging in any form of counter-history. No one can say for sure what could or might have been accomplished if President Eisenhower and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, had agreed to reach out to Kremlin leaders. I do believe that Malenkov and others in the Kremlin were open to some kind of direct negotiation with the Americans, they engaged in what we call a peace offensive. They engage in many gestures of substance and of symbolic nature over Germany and over Korea, for example, reaching out to the West to say, Stalin is dead. Something fundamental is changing inside our country right away, and something can change between us but Eisenhower and Foster Dulles in particular ignored their entreaties. Eisenhower did give a major speech, his famous Chance for Peace speech, on April 16th, just five or six weeks after Stalin's death. Many people believe that this speech was his way of reaching out to Soviet leaders, extending a hand, almost seeking negotiation. I interpret things differently. I believe that in the end, Eisenhower was not open to a discussion with the new Soviet leadership. He was wary of it. He was very much under the influence of Foster Dulles. So that the speech touched on many issues that mattered to Eisenhower, like the increase in the defense budget, which bothered him. But on the other hand, he was when you read the speech, it's pretty clear he's saying to Soviet leaders, we want you to withdraw from Eastern Europe, which was an impossibility less than 10 years after World War II. We want you to allow democratic elections in Eastern Europe. Again, a completely unrealistic demand on Soviet leaders. So it wasn't a realistic speech in terms of what could move Soviet leaders. But what startled Eisenhower and the world is that within 10 days, the entire speech by Eisenhower was translated and published in the Soviet press. And this included severe criticism of Stalin and the Kremlin, for the Cold War, for the creation of the Cold War, for the buildup of military forces on both sides. So Soviet leaders were allowing their population to read the comments by an American president, unfiltered, without ridicule, and they can make up their own mind. And they accompanied this translation with a serious response to Eisenhower, not a propagandistic one. So it seems clear to me that Soviet leaders were open to some kind of dialogue with the Americans. But in the end, Eisenhower and Foster Dulles together decided not to pursue that avenue.
0: You write that Stalin's heirs seemed determined to address the country's misery. The doctor's plot was publicly repudiated as early as April 4th, and sweeping, surprising reforms were undertaken almost immediately, including the release of more than a million prisoners from the Gulag. These actions had some unexpected results, didn't they?
1: Well, these were separate actions, but together marked uh, a real dramatic gesture and change to the population. By the end of March, the Soviet leadership made a decision to downsize the Gulag. They released well over a million prisoners. Now, these were all criminals who had been convicted, and they were released back into the population. And this caused a great deal of anger and chagrin, because of course there had been no process of rehabilitation. There was no guarantee that these men, mostly men of course, were ready to resume life in in civilian society. There was a severe uh, increase in petty crime and violent crime in Soviet cities, which angered the population and angered local officials who appealed to the national leadership to do something about this but there is no way to round up these now released prisoners so that was one thing that that upset the population secondly they did change the administration of the gulag and brought it within the purview of the ministry of justice so that there'd be a little more objectivity and a little more, I don't want to say humane treatment, but a, a, a little more intelligent treatment of how the prisoners were to be treated. Thirdly, the uh, release of the doctors and the public repudiation of the doctor's plot, first on April 4th and then again in Pravda on April 6th, was a major revelation. There was no precedent in the Soviet press for the regime making an excuse, asking for forgiveness, admitting that, to one of its own crimes. And that's what it was doing here. Now, we have to keep in mind that as dramatic as this was, there were limitations. The regime's admission never mentioned Israel, never mentioned the word Jew, never referred to the pressure on Soviet Jews throughout the country. It simply said that this group of doctors had been maligned, had been falsely arrested, it admitted they'd been tortured. It now said they were being released. And it blamed the whole episode on figures within the security services. It did not blame Stalin. It did not blame the Presidium. It did not blame the leadership of the Communist Party. It did not refer to the waves of propaganda, outright anti-Semitic propaganda, anti-Zionist propaganda that had so highlighted the Soviet press from January on, and in fact, had highlighted the Soviet press for several years beforehand in other waves of anti-Semitic campaigns, So none of that was referred to. So in some ways, it was a very limited admission. In some ways, it was actually a cover-up, I feel. But nonetheless, it was very dramatic and certainly marked an end to one episode, a very opaque episode of Stalin's regime.
0: William Taubman, another longtime Davis Center associate and biographer of Khrushchev, referred to Stalin's death as a 20th century turning point that didn't exactly turn. What happened after the narrow window of opportunity to improve relations between Russia and the West closed? And what, ultimately, did future generations learn from this experience?
1: Well, Eisenhower and Khrushchev did not meet for several more years. That was first. And, uh, of course, when Khrushchev did come here in the late 50s, he caused a great deal of interest and even enthusiasm because of his outgoing personality, because he made some very dramatic gestures and there was some controversy where he was— Questions were raised about his role under Stalin, which, of course, upset him. But nonetheless, there was a spirit of peaceful coexistence and some meaningful dialogue and uh, negotiation that, for example, 10 years later in uh, 1963, led to the limited nuclear test ban treaty, which was a major accomplishment uh, for Khrushchev and at that point for uh, President Kennedy. Secondly, we're still left with the lingering question of what might have been achieved in the spring and summer of 1953. And I can't say for sure what subsequent generations have learned from this. But, you know, as Churchill liked to say, it's better to talk than to go to war, than to fight. And this was an opportunity for greater discussion, for negotiation of some kind. But, you know, Adam Ulam, who was a longtime professor here, even he wrote his regret that the Soviet and American leaders did not find a way to negotiate. He felt that so few years after World War II, that American leaders in particular felt that Stalin had gotten the better of both uh, President Roosevelt and President Truman. And so American leaders were very wary, were very afraid of meeting Soviet leaders face to face. They thought they just weren't up to negotiating with them effectively. And certainly that's how Foster Dulles felt. And I think that is another indication that this was simply a missed opportunity. Stalin's death did not mark the end of the dictatorship. The dictatorship of the Communist Party continued. But this was not just an ordinary dictator. This was Stalin, who was ruthless, who was cruel to everyone in the country and even the people closest to him, including his family and his own lieutenants. After all, his lieutenants were not only his accomplices. They were always his potential victims. But when he died, that source of fear evaporated, certainly evaporated for those lieutenants. And so that's why I believe that the Americans, sensing that something dramatic was happening, and they did, there are plenty of reports within the American administration of bewilderment at these changes, including from Alan Dulles, Foster Dulles's brother, who was the head of the CIA, who admitted to Eisenhower in the cabinet that they did not foresee the changes in foreign policy and in domestic policy that were initiated by Stalin's lieutenants, his heirs, after he died. But the Americans simply didn't have a a good enough sense of history to respond to that opportunity. And that is one conclusion I reach in the book.
0: You've been listening to Joshua Rubenstein on The Eurasian Enigma. His latest book is The Last Days of Stalin. Josh, thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: Good to be with you.